Okay, thank you very much for coming. Let me give a quick summary of where we're at in the discussion. Last week I set out the broad parameters um, for thinking about the value of the humanities in the way that I want to pursue it, which is not polemic, as I said in the advertising for this series, uh, but thinking about the different ways in which we have conventionally defended the humanities and giving those arguments a hard time. So my purpose is partly taxonomic because I think there's some virtue, some usefulness to mapping out the terrain more clearly rather than falling back intuitively on certain kinds of response to certain kinds of pressure or, or certain kinds of criticism of what we do. Um, and partly because I think the polemical mode, although it's often needed, um, is not necessarily the mode that shows us at our best. Um, and for me, given that what we do is interpretive, is critical, uh, there's a very good reason why we should be applying those very procedures to the business of valuing what we do or of defending its value or its justification in the public sphere. Okay, the five uh, taxonomic groupings, if you like, that I set out last week the first one is really a justification, it's the one I'm going to be talking about today, a justification rather than a valuation of the humanities. Um, but on the basis of that justification, a lot of other valuations are built. And that is the basic work of describing uh, um, the, the work of the humanities, the distinctive kind of work that we do, and implicitly or explicitly setting out the difference between what we do and the sciences or social sciences. So there's other two large institutional groupings that sit alongside the humanities in our university structures. And the second of them, next week I'll be talking about arguments in relation to use value. There's a very long tradition of thinking about the humanities as opposed to instrumentalism, opposed to use value of any kind of direct applicable kind. I'm going to be using Matthew Arnold, a kind of revised Arnoldianism, if you like, to think about use value as something that is part of what we do, but a basic or primary part of what we do, and of diminishing use, as Arnold saw it, as you go up the educational scale. Um, the third one is the least mapped out terrain for arguing, although it's been very current in government discourse in the last couple of years here in Britain. And that's the argument that if you're describing public benefit, part of that benefit might take the form of a contribution to happiness. So I'm going to use John Stuart Mill to think about what a qualitative hedonistic argument for the humanities might look like. The fourth one is probably the one you've heard most often. Um, it comes out of the American liberal arts tradition, but it's become very popular here. And part of the difficulty, I think, with making it work for us is that in the main, we don't have liberal arts bases to what we do. We work through a specialized system of higher education. That's the argument that democracy needs us. And the last of them, I'll be using value theory to think through arguments for what has conventionally been called intrinsic value, but I'm going to suggest might better be called arguments for the value of what we do for its own sake. Okay, and at the end I'll talk a little bit, um, if I leave myself enough time, about how you might then put all of those arguments into service as part of a pluralistic account of what the humanities do. Okay, so let me start with a really basic definition of the humanities. I've put this on the top of your, um, of your handouts. Let's try this one on for size. Okay. The humanities study the meaning-making practices of human culture, past and present, focusing on interpretation and critical evaluation primarily in terms of the individual response and with an ineliminable element of subjectivity. Now, it may be only at that level of generalization that you can make an argument hold, a positive description of our work hold, uh, in ways that will command complete assent. But the moment I put it in front of you, I imagine your well-trained critical eye is going to start worrying about terms like culture, meaning, individual, subjectivity, and probably interpretation and evaluation. So it's a bit anodyne, it's a little bit ungainly. But it says something about a distinctive content, cultural practices, including but not limited to the arts, 
and something about a distinctive understanding of what's involved in being truthful. That is an acceptance that truth claims will not and cannot be founded only on positivistic appeals to evidence, but must entail the exercise of judgment. This initial description, as I said, doesn't provide evaluation on the base. It, it, it provides a basic specification of objects of study and modes of scholarship on the basis of which you can start to build valuations. It says nothing about further requirements often associated with the humanities, things that people care about very much often, historical interpretation, rhetorical analysis, the cultivation of style, of creativity, of imagination, that last one I think especially people tend to care about um, in arguments for the humanities. And I'm not putting it there right up front because I think however important those things might be to aspects of what we do, they're not completely generalizable. Okay? Now, even that basic claim, that slightly ungainly basic claim, isn't completely uncontentious. One objection to it arises out of its implicit joining of the humanities to the word human. Jonathan Culler notes that our language proposes a strong link, not just between the humanities and the human being, but between humanistic thinking and even humane behaviour. And that proposition, he thinks, risks leading us astray. Much of the most interesting work in the humanities, he writes, in recent years has been concerned with teaching us that human intentions and purposes are not a reliable guide to what's actually happening in history, in discourse, in the psyche. But if you want to question, and he's not wrong to do it, if, if you want to question the force of the etymological connection between human, humane, humanity, <coughs> and insist on its historical contingency, its at least partial psychological inscrutability, its linguistic conditioning, doing so doesn't necessarily render the link invalid. The humanities do obviously concern themselves with human culture, not in the first instance with animal behaviour or the physical world or mathematics or laws um, or the operations of businesses, for example, though all those things can come within our remit, especially at your level of graduate study as they get represented in culture. The students of the humanities, I think, take the philosophical and psychological difficulty of knowing and appraising human intention as a condition for what we do. If you, if you haven't signed up for that, you're kind of not in the room in the first place. So I think you can grant Culler's caveat without reaching his conclusion that it's time we found ourselves another name. He doesn't have one to suggest. He just thinks it might be time we found one and we should go looking. The fact that few of us working within humanities departments seem to identify closely with the term humanist is more a sign of its inevitable institutional looseness, I think, than its objectionable authority. And if you did want to change the name, I think you'd need to get a bigger political momentum behind that move than we've yet seen happening. If anything, the political momentum at the moment, I think, is to make that word humanities gel more for us and to make us feel a bit more attached to the word humanist than we intuitively are. Now, there's a more substantive question, maybe, about the extent of the claim for the humanities that can be, can be built on the technical training and ethical commitments involved in critical reflection or critique. It's a really tempting idea that the critical reflex that prevents you from listening to me define the humanities with words like meaning, culture, and so forth to the fore, that prevents you listening to that and thinking about it as unproblematic, might be distinctively something that you've been trained to do as a person in the humanities. That educated response that you've all built up by now can come into play at the level of the language, probing, for example, definition, etymology, cultural resonance, stylistic disposition of the words. If you're historians, it might come into work at the level of history, assessing the origins of the claim, its changing significance or its durability over time. If you're a philosopher, it's likely to be at the level of testing the argumentative premises. The more philosophically strenuous term critique covers a really wide range of practices from the high Kantian enterprise to what Foucault quaintly termed the little polemico professional activities. 
and across a really wide ethical gamut from narrowly focused fault finding through to the normative exercise of judgment as defined in various philosophical schools, Kantian, Marxian, Habermasian, for example, right through to the non-judgmental, non-prescriptive forms of moral inquiry associated with scepticisms old and new, linking, say, Foucault and Montaigne. Recognising the extent to which we are involved, humanities people, with such trained modes of engagement with culture, some contributors to the condition of the humanities debate in recent years have tried to avert or subvert claims that the field is in crisis with the kind of cheerfully perverse description that crisis is what we do best. Okay, that's where we're happiest, <laughs> right? Jonathan Culler grants something to this self-conception, but he's really wary of granting too much, rightly, I think. One reason, which is likely to weigh more heavily if the field is under financial threat um, or has diminishing student numbers coming its way, um, is that justifying the humanities by way of their commitment to critical scrutiny of language, media, history, modes of reasoning, may not seem to give them enough by way of a positive public function. Too much critical reflexivity, he says, may suggest possibilities of paralysis through excess of self-consciousness and infinite regress. To which you can add that other people can quickly become exasperated, and I think one can oneself become bored with critique as a default mode of operation. But if yoking the humanities to the work of criticism isn't enough by way of distinct justification, I don't think it's a self-description we should be giving away too quickly. A defensible version of the critical thinking claim can be reasonably modest but quite tenacious. Though critical self-reflection isn't unique to the humanities, and it's not all we do, it's indispensable. It's sufficiently characteristic of much of, of our work to be the basis amongst, one basis amongst others for the ascription of distinctive purpose. And it's going to be more prominent in our self-descriptions than in an equivalently general account of the sciences or social sciences. So, as with many differences for the humanities, the problems arise when one part of the characterization starts to stand for the whole. Both criticism and critique, whatever particular remit we're giving them, omit a lot. The work of the humanities is frequent, if you think about it, descriptive or appreciative. It includes ways of attending to objects of study that are technical, aesthetically evaluative, curatorial. Its public purposes can include maintaining and reanimating knowledge of the cultural heritage, explication of the products and processes of culture, stimulation of public curiosity in new objects, new subjects. And again, these aren't primarily critical activities. In the main, humanities are as concentrated on the character of an individual response as any generalizable knowledge claims. And they typically have, and this may be the most distinctive thing about us in, in, in some people's eyes, they have an interest in the color and temper of that response that goes well beyond conveying knowledge or pursuing a critical interpretation of it. Not least the humanities are rightly most admired when their practice rises to an art, you know, when it has a kind of distinctive style or voice to it when it bears the, the imprint of the individual personality, if you like. Their work isn't always conducted from a position of high seriousness, and this may be the hardest thing to include in a public defense of what we do. Quite a lot of the work that, that I find most attractive, and maybe that you do too, is work that is funny, not particularly serious, but you know, stylish, witty, engaging, kind of gets you thinking. And where what matters about it may not be most that it commands your agreement, that it makes you think, that was a really interesting piece to read. You know, wh what kind of performance might I do myself in a different vein? So, with all that, uh, if you like, um, terrain of argument behind them, a number of recent writers have started to ask whether it might be time to direct critique towards itself, as is sometimes called the critique of critique, in order to contest the normative effects of critique's place within the profession in recent decades, and to ask what other forms of engagement with culture it's leaving out.
The peculiarity of the critique of critique, as that label suggests, is that it's still got critique at the fore. Okay? It's just applying itself to itself in, in order to undo itself. And I think it is a problem if you're to unmoor it from critique altogether and start just thinking about work that is a testament of an emotional response, for example, or the practice of a style, or any of the other kinds of subjective or performative response that humanities work can be, it can become much harder to justify itself publicly and earn its keep. And it's likely to do it best when it really expresses a form of authority or charisma that's highly individual. Okay. If it doesn't do that, there's a very nice phrase I heard Hayden White use once in a, in a lecture in Bristol, so I can't give you anywhere to go and find it. I don't think he's ever written it down. He asked an extraordinarily complicated question of somebody at the end of one of their conference papers. Dead silence. And he said, it's not really a question, it's a demand for love, as Lacan would say. <laughs> that is my worry about the critique of critique, is that if you do start to sort of leave critique behind and speak about the specificity of your emotional response to Jane Austen or whatever it is, it can become, I think, a demand for love. Now, the recent popularity of the critique of critique notwithstanding claims that the special purpose of the humanities is more and less stringently critical thinking tend to find quite wide approval. The unexamined intellectual life is not worth defending. But as a core element in a justification for the humanities, there's one more objection to answer, and it's really the main thing I want to concentrate on today. It seems to state a questionable assumption of privilege over other fields, okay, that we are somehow distinctively critical and self-reflexive in a way that other fields are not. Philosophers are no doubt going to sense a special interest in the Socratic injunction to think hard about one's thinking, but there's a limit to how far even philosophy can claim special ownership of critique, and how far the humanities can, as the home of philosophy, assert their difference on that basis from the sciences and social sciences. Okay, so the knowledge base and the critical tools of historicism and rhetorical analysis and philosophical inquiry are going to be developed to their highest, if you like, within specific disciplines. But they are things that we all do. A scientist, and I mean all in the university, a scientist or a social scientist who just gets on unreflectingly with the current critical method is going to be turning themselves into a technician, effectively, not someone who's really advancing debate within the field or the findings of the field. So you can see, and I've put them on your reading list if you want to pursue them, a number of readers, um, writers in recent years, who found themselves wrestling with the disciplinary self-interest bound up in the Kantian view, effectively, that philosophy alone concerns itself purely with the exercise of the critical function and must therefore be free from the state requirement that it directly serve the public good. Critique, Judith Butler asserts, belongs not just to the discipline of philosophy, but throughout the university. She's, gloss she's glossing Derrida. In fact, if you go back to the Derrida original, he carefully preserves the priority of philosophy at the same time that he dislodges it. His own phrase is, the freedom of philosophy is absolute, but it is a freedom of judgment and intra-university speech, and it will always find itself in conflict with the desire of the higher faculties, theology, law, and medicine for Kant, to govern or dominate. Philosophy must be permanently armed to defend it. A common line of argument for advocates for the humanities who want to retain a distinctive claim then that we're concerned with critical inquiry and I do think this is a bit sneaky, is to say that other fields are behaving humanistically when they start to do that, as opposed to empirically or positivistically. In other words, those other fields are borrowing qualities more commonly associated with us in the humanities, and especially with philosophy. At this point, the description seems to me to start to look somewhat imperialistic, but in practice, if you think about it, any proactive effort at extending your reach too far beyond your own disciplinary boundaries is going to prove self-limiting. The next quotation you have on the sheet in front of you is from the sociologist Andrew Abbott, 
who describes such attempts at expansion of the domain as giving an aggressive discipline its most extensive cross-section. English, for example, claiming control of everything written in texts because English thinks of itself as the master discipline of the interpretation of texts. For each discipline, there is some dimension of definition along which its projection is greater than that of the other disciplines. In moments of aggression, it will emphasize this dimension, although doing so may expose it to insufferable competition. So history can claim mastery, for example, in moments when that field is particularly buoyant because everything has a history. Linguistics can do it because all, uh, everything enters representation through the structures of language. Philosophy, as, oh, you can say the image as well. Philosophy, as we have seen, may claim priority over all intellectual operation, operations because it's the discipline that thinks about thinking. If advancing strong claims for a discipline or a group of disciplines can be a gesture of imperial advancement that meets with resistance, it can, though, be, with better justification, a protective gesture with regards to a particular kind of inquiry and forms of knowledge. And if you want to retain that notion that there is something humanistic going on that is importantly or politically humanistic, I think it has most force when you see certain kinds of work finding themselves without a strong defence internal to the field. So, for example, if you see economic study happening in a way that really systematically neglects economic history, something some of my economics colleagues complain about in their own faculties, or cognitive psychology that has absolutely no scepticism reserved about the explanatory reach of brain imaging, or rational choice modelling that fails to consider the uneven possession of agency, or theorising about science that forgets to allow for the perspective of the theorist, in all these cases, the term humanistic starts to operate polemically on the front that most clearly distinguishes a neglected edge of those fields from their most aggressive edge. You can perceive the marginal prestige of the term humanistic within some, some parts of social science at the moment and science, and yet know its value in bringing back to notice currently undervalued ways of thinking about the subject and rebalancing the claims of the other disciplines, helping to retain a broader view and sometimes to restore public conviction. And it's in those kinds of circumstances, I think, the offensive ones, if you like, but also the defensive ones, that the qualities by which the humanities claim distinctiveness become most sharply apparent. So let me give you a slightly thickened out description of what we do in those instances. The humanities then have a tendency to value qualitative above quantitative reasoning. They distrust proceduralism in the main. They have greater faith in interpretative than in positivistic thinking. They're oriented as much towards historical as synchronic structural analysis, and they attend to the role of the perceiver in ascertaining even the most philosophically secure of knowledge claims. Relatedly, they have an interest in the specificity of the individual response, its content and its style, over and above the generalised or collective response, and a concern with what can be known or understood even though it's incapable of empirical verification. On these occasions, the humanities, you can see, projecting their most forceful self-image outside the discipline, even if it's at the price of temporarily losing sight of the other things that we do, the funny stuff, the trivial stuff, the performative stuff. The forceful self-image, which is much stronger than the initial claim I gave you, draws to the surface the real problem here, the underlying structural assumption of all efforts to account for distinction, the source of the real difficulties, the nature and the logic of the contrast with other fields. Distinctiveness in intellectual cultures is actually really hard to describe, given that we do it all the time. It's much harder than you might think. We recognise it all the time as, at a minimum, the technical and social expression of patterns of intellectual specialisation that, in the UK, especially start very early and are very honed through specialisation. If you're going to capture the particular qualities of an intellectual field, you need to be able to make external comparisons. What makes it unlike other fields, in other words, is, is part of the description. 
explicit characterizations of how the humanities differ from the sciences and or the social sciences are therefore in principle only articulating in, in detail what's otherwise there but inexplicit, so underlying it without being spelled out. But if you look at the efforts that have been made over the last two centuries especially to render the comparative features and virtues of work in initially literature and science, <coughs> humanities and science, and more recently three cultures, humanities, social sciences, sciences, it would be difficult to look at those efforts and think that they were arguments that had helped us very much. And I think that this may be the, the only case in the arguments I'm giving you um, where there has been an unhappy tendency to convince almost no one at the same time that there has been a very strong compulsion to repeat. So part of what I think about is, uh, what I want to think about next is why that compulsion to repeat if the arguments aren't really getting us anywhere very helpful. Is there anything we can do better than has been done in the past? No, I don't want to rerun the history of two cultures and three cultures debates for its own sake, but sort of keep an eye on that history and try to figure out what kinds of reasoning are going on in them. So I'm going to assume that you have some familiarity with C.P. Snow's charge in 1959 that the representatives of the traditional culture, the literary intellectuals as he called, him, called them, were no longer the true intellectuals of their day and that the future belonged or should belong to the scientists who have remade our reality in the way that literary intellectuals were, he thought, at once culpably ignorant of and intuitively hostile to. And I'm also going to assume some familiarity with F.R. Leavis's still startlingly vituperative. You read it now, it can still make you gasp. It's so astonishingly aggressive. Uh, his counterclaims, or aggressive defensive, if you like, his counterclaims in 1962 for the importance of the best literature, which has its immediate and crucial relevance because it asks and makes us ask, what ultimately do men live by? Now, I think you'll know from last week, if you didn't already know, that Snow Leavis was a reworking of another famous but a slightly less antagonistic series of encounters between Thomas Huxley and Matthew Arnold during the 1880s. And it's had numerous repetitions since Snow Leavis. The most striking, the one I'll talk about um, briefly here in recent decades, was the Sokal Affair of 1996. Are you all familiar with that? Some of you familiar, some of you not? Okay, I will go into it a little bit. Um, the physicist Alan Sokal placed a hoax article with the cultural studies journal Social Text in 1996, purporting to demonstrate the social constructedness of gravity and prompting a great deal of social, uh, sorry, of soul searching within the humanities about comparative understandings of fact and truth in the disciplines, the ethics of professionalism, the function of scepticism, the nature and limits of social construction arguments in particular. It was a kind of crisis moment for social constructionism, the moment at which the field went silly, so to speak, or seemed to go silly. And perhaps most revealingly, the implicit battle for the future of the social sciences. Okay, so what kind of arguments are two culture arguments? They are by their nature polemical. And they take what credibility they have from walking a very thin line between plain statement and overstatement. Their conventional locus, I think this matters, has been until recently the lecture, the public speech, the polemical essay, and in more recent years, the blog and the web posting. They've often, but not always, been occasioned by an external incitement, sometimes a prescriptive requirement that a debate get staged. And in very recent decades, a number of writers have, I think, attempted to improve and defuse some of the problems of that model of, of public polemic, sparring off of two opponents, by filling out C.P. Snow's hint that when he wrote about two cultures, it might have been better if he'd written about three, and allowing for characterizing distinctions not just between the humanities and the sciences, but this third term, the social sciences, that's come in more recently. <coughs> Snow thought that he should have allowed a distinctive role for social historians, what we would now more commonly say, I think, is the, the social sciences as the institutional grouping. Uh, when you look at those arguments, I won't say very much about that there is a very strong tendency for the internal humanist empiricist qualification 
to insert itself over the top of each of those groups. So in fact, you could say, looking at most three cultures arguments, there are actually two cultures arguments spread out over three. They still have a kind of binary un underlay. But typically, I think it's important that the three cultures versions try to avoid the model of cultural antagonism and correct some of its excesses and misrepresentations. Um, there are two, but I'm actually going to talk about the more recent, just because it's more institutionally up-to-date. Wolf Lepenis's The Three Cultures, which came out in 1985, first in German and translated in English. Uh, and Jerome Kagan, The Three Cultures, Natural Sciences, Social Sciences and the Humanities in the 21st Century, which came out in 2009. Two and three culture arguments alike have in the past 30 years especially coincided with efforts to replace the concept of opposing cultures with one culture models, interdisciplinarity. I don't really have time to say much about them, so I'm just going to give you a kind of condensed version of my own prejudices. A lot of the work I do myself, I will say before I go any further, is describable as interdisciplinary, so philosophy and literature, history of science and literature and so forth. But I have real doubts about the way the word is being used. I said a little bit about this last week, didn't I? Um, so for those of you who weren't here, but just to cement it a little bit more in this particular context, it's a word that's become enormously attractive to funding bodies because it immediately seems to meet the requirement that different fields be speaking to each other and that the body of knowledge is becoming available to more people and relevant um, more broadly. But if you look at the history of the word interdisciplinarity, it's not a recent corrective that we've brought to overly specialised fields. It emerges in OED gives um, the first adjectival form to 1930, but it really emerges in the 1920s and 30s alongside the rise of disciplines. So I think we ought to be a little bit cautious about the force of that word interdisciplinarity as an institutional description. It operates mainly at the postdoctoral grant funding level. Um, it doesn't work at the moment very strongly as a description of job applications, job fields, you know, um, job requirements. Most of what we do, even when it's something like postcolonial studies or um, science studies or history of science or area studies, still operates out of a disciplinary base. And what happens is that people step out of their disciplines to collaborate with each other across the top of them. So when Andrew Abbott looks at this problem um, in chaos of disciplines, he observes that the most striking feature of our modern disciplines is not their structural fertility, but the cohesion and core immobility that you can see in their social and cultural arrangements. They permit a great deal of flux at the perimeters, so he goes into a sort of history of their fractal, fractal lineages, as he calls it. But the overall structure seems virtually unbreakable, and if you're interested, go to his last chapter where he thinks about what it might take to break the disciplines as we currently have them. He suggests it would be a cultural revolution affecting the central symbolic system, that would unmoor its authority and unbalance the system as a whole, but that would mean something on the scale of the Copernican or Darwinian revolutions. More conceivably, a reorientation in the system of professional rewards so that we were valuing teaching above the command of abstract knowledge via research, or a system-wide switch in what he calls the importance of audience. So the ongoing change from a structure in which academics control each other's rewards to one in which they're much more answerable to students, administrators, and others who control them might be a shift of that order. And you might want to argue that we are see, seeing the start of something that would amount to that. Okay, of the, main, the many reiterations of the two cultures conflict, the rewriting of Huxley and Arnold in Snow Leavers is the one that's most important, I think, in structuring the terms of the debate that we've inherited. If you look at those two debates together, the first of them, Huxley-Arnold, represents a kind of high moment of optimism about the possibilities in Britain for a liberal secular model of education in which the humanities and the sciences would both play a part. Snow Leavers represents a kind of crisis, if you like, in that optimism. 
what had been a friendly contest of priorities. So Huxley and, and Arnold were up to a point friends and kind of convivial and cooperative in the way they displayed, even if they sparred rhetorically, became a much more rivalrous exhibition of, of distinct commitments, different politics, conflicting attitudes to history and modernity. Snow wasn't interested, as Huxley had been, in ensuring the place of science in a more holistic educational culture. He was really interested in the impact of educational systems on public life, especially government and a growing technocracy. He wanted to counter a bias against science that he thought had been institutionalized in public life by influential literary men being far too influential. And he wanted to enable future governments to employ new scientific technologies effectively in the war against world poverty. So effectively he raised, if raised is the word, a debate about respective strengths within educational practice to a struggle for political dominance in relation to the wider public sphere. You can go into, I've given you enough of a guide to the literature in your handout to see where the history of, of treatment of that, um, of those initial two important forms of the two cultures encounters goes, how it's been interpreted historically, what the relationship is to technocracy and so forth. If you look at the progression of that antagonism across the 19th and 20th centuries, one of the things that becomes clear is that the, the social context, and not least the class context that contained it, in the high Victorian period couldn't be relied upon by the 1960s, even if the predominant response to Levis was dismay at his abandonment of politeness. And it's equally clear that when the two cultures conflict came back to prominence in the Sokal affair in the 1990s, it was to a degree contained by an alternative ethos that had and has some of the same constraining features as Victorian gentlemanly debate. Again, that is the ethos of professionalism. Much the most striking differences between the Snow-Levis exchanges and the Sokal social text editorship exchanges are on the side of the humanities. So what Bruce Robbins and Andrew Ross, um, Bruce Robbins tells me the, their reply to Sokal was, was primarily drafted by Andrew Ross, but their names are put that way alphabetically, if you like, so let's give Andrew Ross's due. Their defense of their board's actions and their defense of cultural studies by association wasn't rooted as Levis's defense of literature had been in the vitality of the individual response to great literature. It was rooted in the subscription of humanities academics along with all academics to professional values that include intellectual integrity, proper training and credentialing within a specialist field, which in Sir Carl's field should have been physics rather than cultural studies, and not definitively but desirably a willingness to engage in outward looking discussion about politics in ways shaped by the public interest, not the narrow interests of the discipline as it sees itself in competition with others. And that, I think, is a very important change in the, the, the constraining model of, of the rhetoric, if you like. That said, one of the attractions and one of the kind of fascinations, if you like, for historians of two cultures debates has always been the breaching of cultural constraints of politeness. There's a kind of Swiftian lure to the arguments, a sort of sense that in Eri Veritas, you know, that something truthful is being said when people let politeness drop and come out with the things they really think about each other. There's a, a um, I think she's a biochemist, an Oxford biochemist who was in the press last week for reactivating the two cultures debate. I'm sure you'd find her easily if you Google it. Um, though I, can't, I think it might have been in The Guardian, you can, I'm sure you will find her, saying that really these things are as pertinent as ever. And that, that kind of breaching of the kind, especially in a collegiate system, of that, as, that assumption that we regard each other's work um, as, as equally important, equally viable, having its own um, criteria um, for valuation, is a kind of interesting initial attractant, if you like, of, of public attention whenever these arguments happen. Um, looking at the time, because I really do want to get onto characterology material here, the idea of what's been characterised 
um, I'm going to just summarize very quickly. I think part of the reason we're attracted to them in addition to that buzz of anticipation that something exciting is going to happen is that they have a genealogy. So it's precisely the fact that they've been so importantly argued before that makes them attractive to other people to rerun them, to try to do it better. And there certainly is a kind of kudos that can attach to your name in entering the field. I very strongly suspect that most humanities academics would not have heard of Alan Sokal if it had not been for the Sokal affair. Um, I rather wonder whether C.P. Snow's name would have lasted as long on the basis of the novels as it did on the basis of the two cultures argument. The institutional investment in them is a little bit more opaque. I think one of the things that happens with the institution is that although it provides a host for these things, its role is actually placatory in a way. In a way. The, the university's role is to show that it values both equally. On the other hand, most institutions where these things have happened, I think, have profited from the sense that, that big, important matters of public valuation are happening at the interface of the academy with the wider public life. So they tend not to be corrected or constrained by the particular hosts on any particular occasion. Now, the question for a person advocating the humanities now, or trying to advocate for them, is whether the complexity of modern disciplines, their fragmentation into more sharply defined specialisms, but all those connections between them under the aegis of interdisciplinarity, makes it possible to give a more credible articulation of a distinctive culture's argument than has been achieved in the past. Generalizations are generally unsatisfactory, and I spoke a bit last week about just how large the generalizations are that enable us to hold the field of the humanities together. You know, when it's grouping together formal logic, biblical scholarship, imaginative literature, middle high German, uh, archaeology of the ancient world, you've got, you've got a problem of synthesis in the first place. So cultural antagonism arguments have always, I think, concealed, conceded that they are stereotyping, that they have to operate at an uncomfortably high level of generalization. But they also claim the benefits of stereotyping, that what you're doing if you're drawing out characterization at that very broad level is that you're defining things that, if they were true in any one specific case, would amount to a gross stereotype. But if you distribute them across a whole field of operation, become true. They become, if you like, stark outlines. And in the service of pursuing a broad description of what we do, I think we probably are willing to put up with a certain amount of crudification. Okay, now, John Guillory captures an essential feature of all these antagonisms when he observes that caricatures of disciplinary group formation are effective to the extent that they accurately capture the shorthand of any given field at a particular time. They identify what he calls tokens of verbal exchange that make visible the imagined community of the discipline. And those tokens are less articles of faith than provisional currencies. Their values contingent on internal and external factors, including, however, grudgingly, the perception of their credibility in the eyes of the educated general public. The choice to focus, as he does, on rhetoric has always been a hallmark of humanities readings of two cultures' conflicts. And that's in part, I think, predictable. It's an orientation towards our own discipline-specific skills. But when C.P. Snow put the phrase two cultures into general circulation, he explicitly tried to say that it was something more than a rhetorical gesture. Not far into the two cultures, he says he's uneasy about whether down-to-earth scientific acquaintances, uh, non-scientific acquaintances, sorry, so like sensible examples of you and me, <laughs> weren't right to warn him that he was oversimplifying. And he says this, the number two is a very dangerous number. That is why the dialectic is a dangerous process. Attempts to divide anything into two ought to be regarded with much suspicion. I have thought for a long time about going in for further refinements, but in the end I have decided against. I was searching for something a little more than a dashing metaphor, a good deal less than a cultural map, and subtilizing any more would bring more disadvantages than it's worth. Okay, so what is it that qualifies as more than a metaphor, but a good deal less than a cultural map? 
one of the reasons that Snow liked the word culture was that it combined two senses, the personal sense of intellectual development, development of the mind, and what he called the anthropologist's sense. He couldn't deny that scientists as highly educated men possessed culture in the developmental sense, so the first individual usage wasn't problematic. For him, there was a very strong additional attraction in the anthropological denotation of a group of persons living in the same environment, linked by common habits, common assumptions, a common way of life. So what he wanted was a kind of anthropological sketch from his own perspective as someone who could claim to have inhabited both cultures, science by higher education and profession, literature by early education, lifelong familiarity, and by his profession as a novelist. So he wanted a mode of description more substantive than the rhetorical performance, the dashing metaphor, but less exacting than empirical data, you know, kind of you know, getting out on the ground as an anthropologist to provide a detailed map could have given him. In other words, the argument by way of cultural differentiation, whether it's two cultures or three cultures, is a kind of quasi-anthropological argument. It claims a relation to anthropological observation, but it's not empirically grounded, and therefore it has necessarily as much to do with rhetoric. I'm in effect restating what Levis thought was a, a really serious um, you know, matter for objection. There is no evidence, is how he put it. But an anthropological come rhetorical sketch leaves quite a lot of opacity about how the two senses of culture work. And this, I think, is a, a curiously understudied phenomenon. I've, I've tried really hard to find detailed debate about it in the education literature, you know, studies of higher education, studies of educational processes, and I can't find it. It may be that I'm missing something. Please tell me if you think I am. The vagueness of the claim to cultural distinctiveness infects the arguments at both its levels of operation. As an account of the effects of educational specialization on the psychological development of individuals, okay, so how is it the education you've had to debate might have affected your disposition, your character, your outlook? And as an account of the effects of educational specialization on specialized professional and public life, evidenced in common habits, common assumptions, a common way of life. From both those perspectives, <coughs> two cultures' claims are typically and problematically inexplicit about the relationship they're presuming between education and what's commonly called ethos. So between trained habits of intellection and individual behaviour, and between trained habits of intellection and group behaviour. Um, now, I've given you Tony Betcher and Paul Trowler's book, Academic Tribes, as I think one of the um, most serious attempts to work this out in social science. But to shortchange them here as I necessarily must with time, I don't think they come up with a, you know, a full answer to this either. They are, as they put it, social facts. After, after Durkheim, sorry, social facts. The effects of education, like other social facts, are not rigid and unchanging, but they are observably constraining. Insofar as educational patterns of specialization shape our language, the ways we identify objects worthy of study, the ways we deal with them, they do have sociological force. So if you observe how a humanities professor, a social scientist, and a scientist speak and act at a cross-disciplinary seminar, you can work out nothing about their inner psychological states as individuals, but you can work out something about their understandings of conventions of intellectual behavior and something about their values. The really big question is how much can you work out? Now, the names conventionally given in philosophy and just in common talk to the internalization of values along with habituated behavior are character and ethos. The idea that there is a connection between education and character at the level of individuals is really obvious. It's basically what we mean by education, isn't it? You lead out certain qualities rather than others in individuals, and you guide them. Where two cultures' arguments in the past have repeatedly gone wrong, it seems to me, is in raising the quasi-sociological description of behavior to a too firm ascription of characterology. 
Okay? At their strongest, these descriptions ask us to believe that patterns of specialisation in higher education, as they're overseen by the institution of the university, produce entrenched characterological types, as if a collective ethos were formed as strongly and observably as an individual character is. You're shaking your head. You going with me, or are you? No, you weren't shaking your head. <laughs> okay, all right. Is everyone going with me that far? Yeah, does that make sense? Okay, so that's the problem I want to try to gr um, grapple with. I'm maintaining a distinction there between character and ethos that isn't legislated for in the dictionary and that not everyone would uh, subscribe to. I want to, but I, I'm doing it for clarity. I want to retain the word character for the individual expression of qualities, including virtues, and the word ethos for the communal expression of qualities, including educational and professional values. This is Aristotle, and quoted in the OED, ethos is the characteristic spirit, prevalent tone of sentiment of a people or community, the genius of an institution or system. And what I'm suggesting is that the shaping influence of education is less clear, and we need to, make it, we need to work at making it clearer in the case of the collective ethos than the individual character. Though even in the case of the individual, it's far from absolute. Put 30 children in school, give them the same education, they won't come out you know, with the same. Um, characterological bearing at the end of it. Too many other you know, elements are going into their makeup, including ones that may not be cultural. Now, scholars of education nevertheless standardly observe that there is such a thing as a national character of education, so Humboldtian, Napoleonic, Anglo-American, Soviet, and so forth. In the case of the collective ethos of large groups of disciplines, here's another problem for you, we're talking about aggregative effects across a range of scales. We're talking about different individual experiences of education, different kinds of institution, different local relations to national policy making. To describe them well anthropologically would require a lot of observational data. But characterology, as it's been applied at this level historically, has had almost no data behind it at all. And surprise, surprise, given my background, I'm not going to give you data either. That's the challenge to some of the social scientists if they want to take it up. So the most dispiriting aspect of the history of distinct cultures arguments, if you look at it running from Arnold and Huxley through Snow and Leavis to So Carl, is the extent to which the characterological interpretation of differences between the cultures, the intellectual cultures, has developed in force and antagonism, even as the rationale for reading ethos as so strong a collective characterology has remained almost entirely unexamined. I'm going to give you one um, example of this. I, I would love to run you through the ways in which it strengthens from, uh, from Huxley-Arnold through to Snow-Leavis through to Sokal, but I'm actually going to give you um, you just have to believe me, um, and you can look at the book when it comes out for the detail on that one. I'm going to give you the most recent example of it as it's been applied to the notion of three cultures. And this is Anthony Kagan, sorry, not Anthony Kagan, Dragon, Jerome Kagan's <coughs> book, The Three Cultures. Now, unlike Snow and Levis, Kagan, who's Emeritus Professor of Psychology at Harvard and a specialist in developmental psychology, doesn't in the first instance do much with characterology, so he's much more interested in what are the different behavioural um, patterns by which um, intellectual cultures are, are marked. He defines culture as a community of persons who share the same symbolic meanings for various domains of experience, including actions and beliefs classed as right or wrong. Human beings participate in an overarching culture whose symbolic meanings they have in common, but they also participate in more specific locations of culture. So educational setting and professional situation are two of them. Others would be ecological setting, family, class, nation, and so forth. Now, I take it that's a basic Tylorian definition of culture, slightly modified through Durkheim. Culture, as Kagan describes it after Durkheim, is explicitly pluralistic. In principle, Snow thought that was right, but the characterology and the descriptions of culture he drew were so strong that they made that concession seem unimportant. 
Revealingly, what Kagan says is also an account assisted by historical reflection on how thinking about culture has evolved within the social science field, where he says it's moved away from a late Victorian suspicion that the group was just an artifactual construction on top of what we know about individuals towards acceptance of group behaviour as natural phenomena with features that aren't derivatives of the features of individuals. And he says, so long as the social sciences tacitly assumed that the individual was the fundamental unit of inquiry, they were blind to the fact that each person assumes novel properties when studied as part of, as a, of a collective. So this is pretty good grounds for telling us, OK, what are these novel properties when we put all of you and me and, and many others into the humanities? Um, now, you could challenge his notion of culture, I think, on the basis of how far he thinks it is natural or analogous to natural behaviour, but that's a different job from the one I'm pursuing today. Okay, so if you turn to the next piece on your sheet. For Kagan, there are three primary dimensions and six secondary ones through which the three cultures generate distinct properties in their inhabitants. Those dimensions are their primary concerns, the questions they ask, the relative emphasis on prediction, explanation, and description. Their sources of evidence, their vocabulary, the degree to which social and historical conditions influence the questions asked, the degree to which ethical values permeate, or questions about them, the degree of dependency on financial support from beyond the institution, the probability of the scholar working alone with one or two others or as a member of a large team, the contribution to the national economy, and finally the criteria members of the group use in judging work produced <coughs> as elegant or beautiful. At the core of the behavioural description is a series of claims, and if you want to go to the book, have a look at pages um, four to five, where he fills these out in a very um, detailed table. He tends to work from the sciences across to the social sciences and then the humanities, but because I'm interested in humanities, I'm just going to pluck out what he says is distinctive about us. That is, that in the main, we are supposed to be interested in understanding human reactions to events and the meanings humans impose on experience as a function of culture, historical era, life history, where the natural sciences are interested in prediction and explanation of natural phenomena, the social sciences in prediction and explanation of human behaviours and psychological states. The evidential base for the humanities is written texts and other records of human behaviour, gathered under conditions of minimal control. For the natural sciences, it's experimentally controlled observations of material entities. For the social sciences, behaviour, verbal statements, and less often, biological measures, gathered under conditions in which the context can't always be controlled. Each of the cultures, he says, uses vocabulary in ways special to its own historically evolved network of ideas and not always congruent with usage in the other cultures. <coughs> So the humanities are very heavily reliant on semantic and, to a lesser extent, schematic forms, very little on mathematical forms, and you can fill out the comparison with the other fields. Um, perhaps most interestingly, the humanities have a high tolerance for ambiguity, and they conceive of the truth value of their claims in terms of coherence and rightness rather than correctness and validity. Again, you can fill out the comparison with the other fields. Now, you could add to that, but it seems to me basically right and good and not problematic. And then characterology enters the picture and things go horribly wrong. So have a look at what comes next on your sheet. Part of what's powering this description of what our characterology is, is a sense that we have in recent years, and I think this is more true of the States, though it's certainly also true of, of the UK, um, that we have become in institutional terms his, um, more humble than we once were. We occupy a, a much smaller part of the operations of the university and especially of its budgets. Many contemporary humanists, he says, would answer the question, what are the functions of humanistic scholarship with to provide divergent perspectives on the human condition and to create objects of beauty? These praiseworthy goals are far less ambitious than those of Plato, Dante, Bacon, Montaigne, Hume, Kant, or Toynbee, who thought they were communicating profound insights about human nature. 
that should be incorporated into ethical positions, political actions, or daily rituals. And he follows that with a quotation from someone you may have heard of, Anthony Cronman, calling for the humanists to throw off our postmodern qualms and take up our ethical role lest we become a laughing stock, with both within the academy and outside it. That was a much discussed intervention in the United States a few years ago. Though he doesn't gloss the quotation, Kagan clearly shares Cronman's desire to rescue for us some kind of authenticating relation to human emotional states and cultural and historical predicaments. And he wants to do so in ways that prioritize their dis our descriptive over our critical function. So it's not a small problem with this model, I think, that when he looks at what the humanities do, he's actually not describing what we do in a university, working critically or you know, interpretively with the humanities. He's describing the primary texts, the Plato, the Shakespeare, the Montaigne, whatever it is. Which means that we immediately get into the kind of terrain that Stanley Fisher's told us long ago we should be worried about. One of the most unhelpful legacies of romanticism, Fish points out, for advocates of higher education and the humanities, is the perception that we matter because we study life itself. As he says, once you identify the proper object of study with something so general as life itself, it's very hard to see why you need an army of specialists to do it. The fullest consequences of the characterological turn, as Kagan makes it, are heard very late on, but they are really arresting. I did think about not giving you this and just passing over it, but I want you to see, because I think it's quite common terrain for the argument to get into, especially in the States, but not uncommonly here as well. So this I've also given you. The uncertainty and cynicism that characterise the current historical moment cry out to the next cohort of humanists to initiate a crusade. Not the best metaphor maybe to hear from America at this recent turn of history. The current confusion over which moral standards deserve a resolute commitment, combined with a sceptical view of the utility of honouring the traditional standards for honesty, justice and loyalty, have created an ethical vacuum. The lack of consensus among contemporary Americans and Europeans has forced humanists to adopt a more timid posture and suppress the impulse to rouse the public to demand change, whether a serious reduction in class privilege, the gap in academic achievement between the children of the poor and the privileged, or less, violent on t less violence on television. Only the economists feel confident in their recommendation that a guilt-free self-interest is the only rational way to conduct a life. Okay. There are huge problems here, it seems to me. It's not the move to characterology per se that I'm objecting to. It's the ascription of an extraordinarily strong characterology on the basis of what is itself a very strong, unwarrantedly strong reading of, uh, of the comparable economic status of the disciplines within the university. Economic size isn't the same thing as economic independence. Your scientist colleagues will tell you immediately that they spend an inordinate amount of their time working to pursue the very large grants without which they are functionless. So it's, it's, a, it's a major kind of problem for them rather than a kind of position of power. I think he's partly reflecting on the institutional power of economics within social sciences, specifically in America, also here. But the attitudinal stance he's giving the modern humanist is feeble in the extreme. We have impulses towards the public good that are perforce beaten down and can go nowhere. So all we can do is adopt a posture of helpless timidity. And that's going to be reinforced by the lack of any receptive social consensus about the legitimacy of what were once distinctive ethical concerns. Right, now to a non-US reader, I do think there's something recognisably American, though not exclusively so, about such rebukes to the humanities for having dropped the torch of moral encouragement to the rest of the world. Um, but if you're going to offer characterology, characterology is properly and by etymological development, read off behaviour. You know this, you've, you've all done this in your undergraduate degrees. So characterology reads off the signs or traits of an individual or group on the basis of their external deportment. And in order to command agreement, it has to, it has to reflect what other people think they see. And a simple problem with this is it just doesn't square up 
with how most, of not just the rest of us in the humanities, but how most people would see the work of even the humanists within his own department. There is plenty of morally energised, ethically directed work going on within the humanities. As I've already said, I think it's a highly contestable reading off of what happens in institutional power relations. But if something has gone wrong there to the detriment of a really effective characterology based on intellectual distinction, was it inevitable? Could it have been got right? Many philosophers have thought that we are obliged to say no, that you just can't do it, that the rendering of a tendency of mind produced by education as a distinctive temperament and a distinctive ethical and political response to the world has no justification in logic. There can be no interpretation of habits and techniques of thought, especially when drawn as broadly as they have to be to distinguish just two or three kinds of intellectual activity, humanistic, scientific, social scientific, that will follow naturally or inevitably from the habits and techniques themselves. In other words, all that happens if you move from a description of epistemological arrangements to an ascription of character is that you illegitimately prop the epistemological on the psychological. On this view, arguments by way of a characterological elaboration of distinctions between the main intellectual departments of the university are just in error from the start. Now, the force of that objection and a defense of characterolo characterology against it have had one really important advocate in recent years. So if you read just one thing off the reading list that I've given you, I would suggest you read Amanda Anderson, The Way We Argue Now. She treats the subject historically and as a matter of contemporary moment for cultural criticism. And in a discussion of pragmatism, which she's taken as a kind of test case that has implications for what I'm doing in relation to distinctive cultures arguments, she draws attention to A.O. Lovejoy's argument with William James as an early articulation of the disputed legitimacy of characterological claims as they've worked through the history of that one area of philosophy. Responding to James's assertion that the pragmatist knows he or she is in the presence of truth partly by the feeling of satisfaction gained from recognizing it as truth, Lovejoy objected, and this is Anderson summarising him, one cannot tell whether satisfaction means an experience of certitude or conviction, a desire for consistency or empirical verification, a charm for the imagination, or a general cheerfulness in the face of whatever is being profounded. Lovejoy argued that clarity, consistency and evidence were sufficient criteria for pragmatism's truth claims, and such a description, he observed, brings no distinctiveness of character to the pragmatist. We are left with, as he put it, simply the old intellectualist criteria supplemented by the psychologically indisputable but the logically functionalist remark that after all a theoretic satisfaction is a kind of satisfaction. Now, Anderson traces several later reiterations of that Jamesian move to install characterology as a component of pragmatist arguments. So she's interested in the characterological self-display or force of writers, including Barbara Hernstein Smith, Stanley Smith, Richard Rorty. She then asks, what are the status of these appeals to character as pragmatists have gone about their work and as they've been described by others? Are they just an informal fallacy? Have the critics in question stopped making real arguments and opted instead for a kind of psychological theatre, as if in demonstration of their own late pragmatist liberation from traditional epistemology into a relaxed acceptance that all knowledge is evolving and contingent? And this is the last quotation on your sheet. This is a tempting way to dispense with things, but one I think we should reject. It would leave us with a very pared-down intellectualism, when in fact what's most interesting is the incorporation of the dimension of character into the discussion of intellectual practice. The incorporation of the characterological is, I suggest, potentially a deep and important move, reorienting us toward the question of whether and how certain ideas can be expressed as a way of life. The merit of an attention to characterology lies in the way it brings theory and practice into relation, vivifying and testing theory through embodiment and enactment. 
In other words, the attempt at characterology marks the point at which epistemological claims declare a relation to the conduct of life. Okay? Until you add the characterology, all you've got is a body of knowledge. But if you want something that has bearing on we ha how we go about living, that's the point at which characterology has to be superadded or, or made part of the description. Now, I don't think this gets us past some of the problems of generalization of the work of the humanities, okay? Because if you're working from the description of the pragmatist to a defense of the description of character to, pragmati to pragmatist, pragmatist thinking, you have a reasonably well-defined body of philosophical thought onto which you can add characterology. If you're working with the humanities, you have that real problem that the dispersity of the things that we do makes it very, very difficult to ascribe anything like philosophical coherence to it. So that's a prima facie problem. But at that point, I don't want to just kind of throw in the towel, because I think she is saying something really important. And the point at which it becomes relevant to do it is that point at which I was describing the offensive or defensive face of the humanities. When the humanities are just going about their work and the other fields are going about it in a condition of mutual respect, the characterological aspect has very little force, I think, indeed. And in those conditions, you have to stay with the bland description that I gave you at the beginning. So the humanities study, the meaning-making practices of the culture with an ineliminable element of subjectivity most of the time. Okay, but if you're working in a system where, or a political moment, especially as the university is at an interface with public life, where the work that humanities do is downgraded in certain faculties of the university, or where it's under pressure to justify itself, you will see the case for in a more aggressive statement of what it is doing coming to the fore, and rightly so. And in those moments, if the downgrading is happening externally, the case for something like virtue, an ascription of value and virtue to what the humanities do, becomes relevant. Okay, so I suppose what I'm saying really is that it is produced contextually and politically by the kind of pressures around it. Yes, in a kind of um, blandly, epistemologically, you know, evenly based description of what we were doing, there wouldn't be a case for it, but we work in a political context, a political climate. So if you're asked without aggressive political provocation to describe the work, you, you can have the bland reading. But at moments when it's politically necessary to display a more aggressive or defensive edge, I'm going to go back to the more robust one that I gave you. In the main, the humanities value qualitative <coughs> above quantitative reasoning. They place greater faith in interpretive than in positivist thinking, unlike the sciences and the scientific wing of the social sciences. I've rewritten this a little bit. They do not have a dominant methodology, and many of their truth claims are not verifiable as those of the natural sciences are verifiable. They tend accordingly to distrust proceduralism and value independence of thought. They're oriented as much towards historical analysis as towards synchronic structural analysis and as much towards the media of expression as towards its content. They tend indeed to see the form-content distinction as itself problematic. They attend to the role of the perceiver in ascertaining even the most philosophically secure of knowledge claims and they have an interest, often they also take pleasure in the specificity of the object of study and the specificity of the individual response, its content and its style, over and above the generalised or collective response. Not least, they respect the products of past human endeavours in culture, even when superseded. Now, these claims relate to trained habits of mind, distinctive intellectual priorities and tools brought to bear on distinctive kinds of object, distinctive relations to truth claims. They do entail some basic assertions of value, so they're going beyond just a basic kind of descriptive justification of the field. So what objects we think it's worth concentrating most of our time and attention upon, what modes of studying them we think valid or important. But the greater latent characterological force of the aggressive defensive claim emerges in and is a product of those moments when there is a competition for priority on matters of common interest in the wider public domain. <laughs>